morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you today. Uh, my name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor for Genesis. And uh, if we've never met before, um, I preach most Sundays at our Noblesville campus and uh, always look forward to the opportunities to come over here and uh, share with you on a Sunday morning and uh, catch up with good friends. And man, I love what Jerry just shared a moment ago too about uh, just an opportunity to pray and to celebrate about Grace Church Bloomington uh, today. Uh, your campus pastor, Steve Wallen, is actually down there. He went down just to be with them today to support them and uh, to encourage them. It's fun. We've uh, been getting to know other churches uh, around the Indy area and really around the state. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we've been meeting together regularly and talking and praying together and just really dreaming about what would it look like to plant churches all around this state together. And, uh, you know, not just in the city, but in the medium and small sized towns as well. And so it's fun to see how the churches here in Indiana are really partnering together uh, to help people find their way back to God. And uh, we get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of that when you pray and with your financial gifts. So uh, thank you for your support. Uh, if you're new with us today, we've been in this series called In the Flesh. Uh, we have been looking at studying the life of Jesus, tracing uh, the steps of his ministry from his baptism to to the cross and uh, to the resurrection. And this morning, I want to look at what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is found starting in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, you can turn there now if you want. Uh, if you use one of the Bibles around the room, it's page 677. But uh, three chapters in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, these are really some of the best known teachings uh, of Jesus that we have. And there's so much to gain from it. And I just want you to know right off uh, the top that this is not an exhaustive study of these passages today. We'd be here till this evening uh, if we really tried to cover all of them uh, this morning. And so there's no way we can do that or that we're going to do that. But here's what I want to do instead. I want to highlight uh, three main themes for you today that come right out of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And, and I want to show you why they matter. And here's what I hope you'll do. I hope that you'll take some time this week and read the Sermon on the Mount yourself. Uh, in fact, I, I'd suggest this. If you make it your goal to read those three chapters at some point this week, even better would be to say, you know what, for each of the next seven days, I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount. I did it last night before I went to bed. Uh, it takes 10 to 15 minutes, depending on how fast you read. And uh, But boy, there could be so much to be gained, and especially, I hope, after we discuss some of the things that we're going to look at today, uh, to read that on your own. And here's really the key thing we need to understand, and this is, a, if you want to write this down in your notes today, we've got it for you here on the the screen. Keep this in mind as you read that the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to live in order to be saved. All right, it's not like a you do this, all right, and depending on how well you do in these things, well, uh, your salvation comes from it. It's not about that, but instead it shows saved people how to live. All right, it's, it's really a how to live, and I hope you see the difference. And I know that that phrase, save people, is a little awkward. It might sound a little foreign to some of you. It's a little churchy, all right, but it really is the best term used to describe someone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ and therefore accepted his free gift of eternal life. And so that should tip you off really right from the start that these words here in Matthew 5 through 7 are, are really for people who are ready to follow Jesus. These are uh, for Christians, all right? This is for hopefully many of you that would say, you know what, I know Christ is my Savior. I'm making every effort to live for the Lord here in this world. Uh, and if that's you, well, then you can see that there is so much to gain as you read these words this week, especially if you're asking that question, okay, now what? Like, what does this look like in 2017? What does it mean to really walk as Jesus walked? But for the rest of you, and I'm trusting that there are some of you here today that maybe you're new to all of this, 
Uh, maybe you are kind of just exploring. Maybe somebody invited you to Genesis today or you've come recently, but, but faith is sort of a new thing for you. I just want to encourage you that in reading these things for yourself, you're going to get a great picture. Right? You're going to get a really good glimpse of what it means to follow Christ. And as you read it for yourself, I just challenge you to ask questions like, you know, what could I gain from this? Or uh, what difference could my life make for others if I were to put some of these things to practice. And something else to keep in mind too, and I just think this is so fascinating as you read the Sermon on the Mount, but keep in mind this, Jesus' original audience, and by original audience, I mean those who are going to listen to him give these words 2,000 years ago, his original audience was made up of Jews, all right, who had grown up under what is sometimes referred to as the Old Covenant, all right? And this is Old Testament language, all right? The Old Covenant, sometimes you'll hear the word Torah, all right? If you want to write that down, it's T-O-R-A-H, or what our English Bible and maybe your Bible refers to this morning as the law. And here's what I want you to do. When you hear the word Torah, all right, when you hear the word Torah, think God's instructions for how to live life well in this world. All right, that's simply what Torah is. It's God's instructions for how to live life well in this world. And here's the thing. When God, all right, through Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt, he took them into a wilderness and he took them to a mountain that is referred to in the Old Testament as Sinai. And it was at Sinai that God established a covenant with his people. And the covenant basically said this, I will be your God all right, and you are going to be my people, and we are going to be in this special relationship with one another. And so it was God's way of marrying the Jewish people. And so if we think of what happened at Sinai like a, a wedding ceremony, well, then Torah, which happens to be the first five books in our Old Testament, Torah then is like God's wedding gift to his people. Again, we are going to be in relationship with one another. This is a covenant relationship, and therefore Torah, God's instructions for life, were God's wedding gift to His people. Now, I realize that might be a brand new way of looking at the Torah or Old Testament law for you. Um, I don't know about you, but I I've grown up, really, uh, with this misconception that the law was just simply burdensome, all right, that it was just simply heavy. And the more that I've read and studied this, that's not what I'm finding at all. In fact, the Jewish people loved the Torah, all right? They held it high. There, there was even a Jewish festival dedicated to celebrating God's gift of Torah. And if you do a study of culture, if you do a study to see what life was really like in the world when God gave this to his people 3,000 years ago, especially the life in bondage and slavery in Egypt, you realize how brutal, uh, you realize how barbaric the world really was at the time when this was given. And so all of a sudden you realize that Torah was progressive. All right, Torah was grace. Again, God was entering into a relationship with his people. He had a plan to show them who he was and what he was like and really the whole world through them. And so this was about God restoring the world to what it was always intended to be. And so Torah or law was a gift. Again, it was his instructions to his people for how to live life well. Now, that doesn't mean that problems didn't result from it. I mean, and the problem that Jesus is going to highlight here in the Sermon on the Mount is that you can follow Torah, you can do what is required, and still end up with a heart that is far from God. That you can make every effort 
and still end up with a heart that's far from God. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. That's humanity's fault. And so what Jesus is about to do on the Sermon on the Mount here is to lay the groundwork for a new covenant that he's ushering in as God's Messiah. You could say this. I have a buddy that says like this, Jesus is Torah incarnate. He is the Word became flesh. And now he is ready. He lived it out. He lived out Torah to perfection. And so now he's ready to help people more fully understand the intent behind it. He is going to help people shift their thinking from Torah simply being a works matter to being a heart matter as well. And to better help us understand that God is really after heartfelt obedience, that he's just not simply after legalistic observance of laws and rituals. And so last week, if you were here, uh, Jerry, our, our, our associate pastor here for our Carmel campus, uh, um, looked at with you the story of Jesus calling the disciples uh, away from the boat, away from their occupation, away from their livelihood to follow him. And we saw these guys drop their nets, again, leave their boats, and they followed him. Uh, I want to look at the end of Matthew 4 with you for just a moment. If you've already gone to Matthew 5, you're already there. If you back up just a few verses, this is going to show us what happened between what we looked at last week and where we are are today. Again, Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee. And again, he's going to have these men. He's going to have his disciples with him now. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and their region across the Jordan followed him. So you can see here that Jesus has been on the move with his disciples. He's traveling from town to town, and he's been teaching people, and he's been healing people, and therefore a whole bunch of people are getting excited about Jesus. Notice that it says large crowds. All right, these large crowds are following him around, and I think it's important to notice that this happens after Jesus spent a couple of years with his disciples. He's had all of this time investing in them, training them, teaching them, raising them up as leaders, and so it happens after Jesus has really formed this ministry team, these 12 disciples uh, who are at work with him. And I, I heard someone explain the significance of this by saying that if Jesus had drawn the crowds before he raised up leaders, it would have been like a thousand baby Christians with no one to change diapers, right? Okay, doesn't that make sense? That, that if Jesus went after this all on his own and simply ministered to the crowds, well, how could the, well, at least the humanity of Jesus, how could he possibly minister to so many needs? And so he first raised up leaders to serve alongside of him so that they could be very, uh, involved as well. I just want you to see that Jesus was strategic and how he did things, all right? He was strategic in his moves. He didn't just draw these crowds early on. He spent the first couple of years training up leaders who could minister to these crowds with him. And so he's got his disciples, all right? And we certainly know there is a large crowd that is gathered, all right? Again, these are people that have heard his message. They've seen the miracles. There's something about him that says, hey, this guy is worth following. So we get to Matthew 5, and here's how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins. Matthew records, Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began 
to teach them. Now, I think it's important to note that I, I don't believe that this sermon was something that Jesus simply gave in 25 to 30 minutes. They sang a song and everybody went home. But rather, this was probably a day worth of teaching, all right, with a large crowd of people, probably some discussion in between the different parts. Now, I know at the same time that many of you were at the Restoration of All Things seminar with Brad Gray that we hosted just a few weeks ago. And one of the things that Brad pointed out is that there are many similarities between what we see and God's work in the nation of Israel, as well as God's work uh, in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. For example, that just as Israel uh, is often referred to as God's chosen people, Jesus Christ was uh, referred to as the chosen one. And just as Israel was called out of Egypt, that even Jesus himself was called out of Egypt as a young child after escaping uh, there to evade King Herod. The, The nation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Did you notice that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness? Uh, As Israel passed through the Jordan to enter the promised land, so Jesus passed through the waters of Jordan in his baptism to begin his ministry. And now, notice this, just as Israel went to a mountain called Mount Sinai where they received God's instruction, where they received the law, so now Jesus has brought this large group of followers to a mountainside to show them how to live out Torah. But there's a problem. Check this out. Here are a couple of pictures uh, that I have. Uh, These are pictures. I I had the privilege of going to Israel back in May, and we are here on the Sea of Galilee uh, looking to the north. If you know your map at all, this is near Capernaum, And, and here is this, well, hillside. Check out this next picture. It's uh, from the same location, but yet standing on the hillside looking out to the water. Here's the point that I want to make. Matthew calls it a mountain, all right? Now, it doesn't look like a mountain to me. Now, I realize we're from Indiana, all right? And so we see a hill like this, and why not call it a mountain? What's happening? Are Matthew, is Matthew disagreeing with, with Luke? Because if you read Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke calls it a hillside. Well, again, this is the traditional site for the Sermon on the Mount. This is where they believe that Jesus gathered with all of these individuals. Again, are Matthew and Luke disagreeing over whether this is a hill or a mountain? No, here's what's so cool. Matthew, if you know the gospel of Matthew at all, his primary audience in writing was for the Jewish people. All right, And so Matthew wants to be sure to provide this important connection for them to Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses went to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah to give to the people. Jesus is taking his children to another mountain or hill where he is going to bring greater understanding to the Torah, to God's basic instructions for how to live life well. Matthew is being intentional in his words to get his listeners' attention. And Jesus is not trying to do away with anything because he's going to make it very clear a little later on in chapter 5 that he's not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And he was the first person in all of history to do that. He lived a perfect, sinless life and therefore was able to make himself a sufficient offering for the sins of this world. Let's read a few verses. Let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. I think these might sound familiar uh, to some or most of you. Jesus said this, imagine a crowd of people sitting there with him on this hillside. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those words are often referred to as the Beatitudes, all right? And and you've probably heard that before. The big idea here uh, that Jesus is trying to communicate is that we are blessed when we realize that salvation is a gift from God, when we realize that God made the first move, uh, that He came to us with Jesus. He did this, and that salvation is not something that we earn, but it's something that God makes available through His Son, and it is available to all people, and it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, it doesn't matter who you are, that His love and His forgiveness and salvation is available to all people, and that through Him, all right, we are invited into a greater way of life. We are invited into a greater purpose for this life. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you caught the key word there uh, in those passages, the word that Jesus used over and over again is the word blessed. It comes from the Greek word uh, makarios, uh, which is here on the screen. It's a word that means uh, happy. Uh, It's a word that means blissful, but it's not a happy that is a result of circumstances in our life, but is a deep and satisfying joy. It means to literally be enlarged. Jesus is using the word here to refer to more than just a superficial happiness. He's referring to a spiritual reality that results in deep, again, lasting and satisfying joy, a joy that is literally enlarged because of what's to come. And so I want you to write that word down, all right? It's the word blessed. That's the first key theme, a word that I hope you'll keep in mind as you read through this text this week. It's the first major theme here. And what Jesus, again, is describing is that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount is is these people, all right, who have a different character quality than what's normal. And this blessedness that Jesus is getting after here, it shows up in strange ways. If you caught some of that, it shows up even in someone who is mourning, that you can find it in a person that's mourning, that even in the midst of great sadness, that we find those people that still have great joy. And we wonder, how does that work? How does that happen? Or maybe someone who has had every right to lash out, everyone, somebody that has the right to strike back and attack someone else, but instead they're content to make peace. All right, to go after peace and, and like winning the fight or being right isn't what's most important to them. Have you ever experienced something like that or someone like that? Or how about this? Have you ever been around someone who that no matter what's going on in their life, no matter the circumstances, no matter how difficult it may be, all right, they're just content. And what Jesus is trying to get after here is, hey, that's a picture of the blessedness all right, that Jesus, that I'm talking for Jesus, that I'm talking about here. It's this understanding that no matter what I've got going on in my life, if Christ is my Savior, that I'm blessed. And no one and nothing's going to take that away from me, that I can walk through anything in this world because I have Christ in my life. And that doesn't mean that we don't recognize that things are hard once in a while or that we've got some real trouble and difficulties in our world. It doesn't mean we just overlook all that. But again, our satisfaction and happiness, is it comes from who we have. Uh, it has everything to do with what we know is ahead for us. And so the theme of blessedness is how Jesus begins. He just says, hey, this is foundational to calling yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, 
It's realizing that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are blessed. Now to the second theme. And I want to look at, uh, look at Matthew 5.20, and I referenced this earlier, but let's look at what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verse 20, Matthew records, For I tell you that unless you, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right? And so theme number two in your notes, keep in mind this week, is the word righteousness. And the word righteousness means moral living. Uh, it means right living, right living in a way that pleases God. And righteousness is a word that you're going to see over and over again uh, as you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. And Jesus' followers were certainly familiar with this theme. The Hebrew word for righteousness uh, appears something like 150 times in the Old Testament. And again, Brad Gray highlighted the themes of justice and righteousness and how it's all over the pages of the Old Testament. But here's the problem that Jesus is highlighting for his listeners. He was pointing out that the Pharisees of the day, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, that they viewed themselves as the perfect example of what it means to live a righteous life. They, they viewed themselves as the righteous elite. They, they prided themselves on how good they were at following all of the rules of Torah, along with a bunch of other rules that they established. And they flaunted their righteousness, all right, so that everyone else could see it. And therefore, you could never measure up to the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus is going to speak straight to this a little later on in Matthew chapter chapter 6, verse 1, if you want to skip over there. Look what he says. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, all right? If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And here's basically what Jesus is getting at here. He's just getting to the heart of the matter and saying this, that it's possible to follow all the rules and to follow them perfectly and still have a heart that is far from God. And that's what he was seeing in the Pharisees, and that's what he didn't want to see in his disciples, and he didn't want to see it in these people that were listening. And it's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I, I think back. I had the privilege of growing up in a great family. I had the privilege of growing up in church from day one, all right? We went twice on Sunday because we had a Sunday night service also. And I, I was a part of this great youth ministry with friends and leaders that I dearly love. But I just got to tell you, I mean, when I think back on it, really the focus of our student ministry growing up was don't sin, all right? And we had a list, you know, of the sins that you need to stay away from, drinking and drugs and uh, you know, inappropriate relationships and the activities that come with that. I mean, just all of these rules. And I got to tell you that I prided myself, all right, in avoiding these things. And what we so often missed, and I know that I certainly missed, is that, but what about my relationship with the Lord? Like, is it my relationship with my, my Lord and Savior that is influencing my behavior and my love for others and my desire to live a righteous life. Um, I'm so grateful for what we've got going on here with our student ministry at Genesis. And I love Danielle's leadership here and the leaders of so many here at Genesis that are saying, hey, yeah, we want to we wanna help influence our students, your kids, into a right way of living. But we want our, we want our students to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because it's going to be out of that overflow of a relationship with Jesus, you know, that our best behavior, quote-unquote best behavior, really has the opportunity 
to be seen by great ways in this world. And so again, you can follow all the rules for the wrong reasons and still have a heart from, that is far from God. That's what Jesus is getting after. But people had to be thinking, what's that look like? And so Jesus is going to give some examples. And let me give you a couple of them. You'll, you'll have to check some of these out for yourself. Uh, Matthew 5, 21, 22, look what Jesus said. He said, you have heard that it was said. Again, there's the connection to the Old Testament Torah. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. The Pharisees of the day must have thought to themselves, check, great, haven't murdered anyone. All right, I got this one down. Look what Jesus followed up with in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, somebody had to be thinking, hang on for a second, Jesus. You're all of a sudden saying that the anger at someone is in the same ballpark uh, as murder. But, but understand here what Jesus is doing. He is maximizing the intent of Torah, all right? He is bringing greater understanding to what God intended. The rule is, do not murder. You have heard it said long ago, do not murder. That is still true, but I'm going to tell you, don't even let anger take root in your heart because it's anger that would ultimately give way to something like that. And so let's Let's nip it at the bud. Let's get to the very root of it and not let anger become the issue for us. Jesus is saying this is a hard issue. Or check out verse 27. Jesus said, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, somebody had to be thinking that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I have a lustful thought now and then, but that's nowhere near as bad as committing adultery. Well, again, what's Jesus after here? What he's going after here is saying, but it starts in your heart. And if it starts in your heart, it gives way to your mind and all of a sudden influences your actions. And so again, Jesus says, let's get at the root of it. Don't even let lust take root in your heart and in your life. And again, remember, these aren't rules in order to follow to be saved. Jesus is showing saved people how to live. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, no more trips to fantasy land, not even a hint of sexual immorality in your life. Make it your intent to follow me, righteous living in everything you do. And so he goes on, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is maximizing the intent. He's bringing greater clarity to the Torah, and he redefines what righteous living looks like. And that's why at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, even if you remember as we're going through those Beatitudes, one of those was that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Basically, what Jesus is getting after is that, well, he hopes and prays that we will come to this place where there's just this pull inside of us to shed an old way of living and to pursue a new way of living. And if that's not going on in your heart and life, then maybe you need to ask yourself, why not? Why, why, isn't, why am I not pursuing righteousness in all things? And it's not that we're going to be sinless, all right? It's not that we're going to be sinless this side of heaven, but we should sin less as we pursue Christ as we really seek to walk as Jesus walks. And that brings us to the third and final theme that I want to highlight, and it's found throughout the sermon, but I want to start in Matthew 6 now. If you want to skip over to verse 33, where Jesus has just told his audience not to worry, to worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear or about your body. Don't worry about these things. And then look what he says in verse 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, seek God's kingdom first in everything. And throughout this sermon, there's all of this attention that he gives to the kingdom of God. And so that's the third major theme that I want you to write down. Write down the words kingdom mindset. 
All right, living, followers of Christ, living with a kingdom mindset. Jesus says, my followers should live with this constant focus on the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, we, we should be so consumed with thoughts about God's kingdom and living as followers of Christ in this world that you know what? It should influence how we spend our time. And if you're going to follow Christ wholeheartedly in this world, it should influence how you spend your time. It should influence how you spend your money. All right, and how you invest your resources in this world. It, it should have everything to do with the people that you spend time with and what you do when you spend time with people or how you go about your work or uh, your time at school right now. Again, those things you're pursuing with your career. In everything we do, Jesus says, we should seek first His kingdom. You know, when I think about living with a kingdom mindset, I think about my, uh, well, I think about a lot about my passport because uh, you could say that a kingdom mindset has a lot to do with identity, all right? Identity and how you see yourself. And if you travel at all, if you travel overseas, you know how critical a passport is. It says a lot about who you are, uh, where you're from, you know. Uh, it provides for the conversation of where you're going, but ultimately, it communicates where you intend to return to, all right, when your trip uh, is all over when your travels are done, do you realize that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you receive citizenship into His earthly or into His kingdom? And it's like, it's like the address on your passport changes from an earthly location and simply reads heaven. And uh, that's just a reminder for us, and I think that's what Jesus is getting after here with, with those that are listening, that if you're in Christ, this world's not your home. It's temporary. Uh, it's the place we're visiting, but the day is coming when we will spend eternity at the address on the passport as citizens of God's kingdom. It's why Jesus was able to say of his disciples in John 17, 16, that they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.20 reminds us that as followers of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And the writer of Hebrews refers to followers of Christ as strangers and exiles on earth. Peter says that we're like aliens here in this foreign place. They all understand that this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven, and our hearts and minds should be focused on that. We need to keep that in our mind of where we're going and who we are living for can I ask you something this morning? We're going to wrap up here in just a second. Are you living today as a citizen of heaven or as a citizen of earth? Because the fact is that we have a job here. We have a mission to fulfill. Uh, this world is not our home. Jesus says at the beginning of this sermon in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that if you're in Christ, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, that if you are in Christ, you are the light of the world, Genesis Church, that we are like a city on a hill for others to see and to others to know who it is that we serve and that we're here to share the good news, to make disciples and to invite others into God's kingdom. But this world is not our home and it's so easy to get comfortable here. And it's so easy to get caught up in the flow and to put all of our focus on what's going on around us and to live like life on planet earth is all there is, but there's so much more. The best is truly yet to come. And so let's not lose sight of that. Genesis, can we make that commitment today? Let's, let's live lives that declare that, God's, that, that we are declaring God's kingdom, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ until He returns. That's what it means to live with a kingdom mindset. In everything that we do, we seek first His kingdom 
and His righteousness. As we wrap up this morning, I want to come back to the big idea that we shared on the screen at the very beginning of the message. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to live in order to be saved, but rather it shows saved people how to live. And the reality is this, that there's application in that statement for everybody here today. And again, it doesn't matter who you are. It could be, it could be the first part of this statement that really most impacts you and Maybe you've been coming for a while now. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been away from church or for even the discussion of Jesus for a really, really long time and you're just coming back. Either way, I want you to know today that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen or wandered. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. and uh, We want you to know today that there is hope for you in Jesus Christ, our Savior, there's forgiveness, there's grace, and you've been given an invitation through Jesus to be a child of God. We sang that song uh, just a bit ago, a citizen of His kingdom. And Paul tells us in Romans that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that Christ was raised from the dead, then we will be saved. And so that's where it starts. I want you to notice today that it doesn't start with a list of rules that you've got to follow. It has nothing to do with cleaning up your act all right, so that you become more presentable for Jesus. No, it starts with faith and just by simply receiving a free gift that has been offered to you. And maybe today, maybe this morning is that day where you make a commitment to Christ, to trust Christ, to receive that gift and to begin walking as Jesus walked. That's what we're up to as a church. That's just what we're simply trying to do. But the second application is equally important and it's the reality that these verses show us how to live. And if you're in Christ, and if you call yourself a part of Genesis Church, how to live? The answer to the what now question, you know, for those who have been surrendered to Christ, well, Jesus is making it very clear in, in these words in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans that we are saved for good works, all right? And so good works have a part if they come from a good heart. And so this life that we've been given, well, it's a life to be lived on mission for Christ, Remembering that blessedness that we have, the righteous living we pursue, and the kingdom mindset that influences everything we do. Let me give you one last example, and then we'll close with communion and a song. Um, I had the privilege of traveling to New York City this summer uh, with my wife while we were on sabbatical, and we visited the 9-11 memorial in Manhattan, which was spectacular. And it was there that I learned about a book called When the World Came to Town. And I had the chance to read that book. I uh, finished it up just a few weeks ago. Uh, it's the story of September 11, 2001. And I'm sure that most of you, many of you, still remember that day vividly and where you were. And we know how horrific it was. And one of the things that took place on that day is over a period of a couple of hours, they started shutting down all of the airspace over the U.S. Remember that? Well, one of the things that I didn't realize, uh, there were many planes coming across the ocean at that time that had nowhere to go. And so the book, the World, When the World Came to Town, is all about the story of when 38 jetliners bound for the U.S. were forced to land in Gander, Newfoundland. It's a true story. And uh, quickly, this town in Newfoundland swelled from a population of 10,300 to 17,000 people overnight. 
And the citizens of Gander met the stranded passengers with overwhelming display of friendship and goodwill as the passengers, the book explains, were finally released from the planes, exhausted and hungry after some of them had been sitting on their plane for 24 hours while their bags went through security. They were greeted. Uh, They were celebrated by townspeople and there were feasts all over the community and all these different locations that had been prepared to feed these people. I found this so cool. Local bus drivers who had been on strike came off of the picket line so that they could help provide a bus to transport these people to schools and to churches and to recreation centers so that they would have a place to sleep. No one knew when anyone was going anywhere. Uh, Linens and toiletries were donated. Uh, A middle school provided showers. Computer labs were open so that people could send emails and just stay in touch with their family and friends from all around the world. The book recounts story after story of kindness and generosity and love and goodwill. And ultimately, the book asks the question, why in the world did the people of Gander respond this way? And for them, it was an identity issue. It was a pride issue. See, I learned that there's something about saying that I'm a Newfoundlander, which is really difficult to say, but there's pride and there's mission and there's purpose in that. Friends, the same is true of calling yourself a Christ follower. And we are here on this earth on purpose to share the love and good news of Jesus Christ and to live a life that causes the rest of the world to go. What is it? Can I have it to you? You willing to live that life? I want to try and live that life too. And we want to live that life as a church and live it together to make the name of Jesus famous in this world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son and for the salvation that has been made available through him. And yet the life that we've been called to at the very same time, we thank you for giving us an example in Jesus. And we thank you for a church and for friends and family that can hold us accountable, that we can walk through these things together, Lord. Will you give us vision? Will you give us guidance? Will you give us strength to live completely and fully for you in this world? And it's in Jesus' name we pray.